and our study centers on one of the greatest promises for believers in the Bible. It's at the end of a psalm that is very, very familiar to all of us. Some of you may have memorized it. So would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 23? Psalm 23. In our study last week, we looked at the widow who uh, met Elisha and told him that she only had a little jar full of oil left. And we talked about how Elisha told her to pour it out. And we learned uh, that the overriding lesson of last week's study was that the supply of the Lord comes when we are willing to pour out our lives to Him. And I hope the Lord's impressed that more upon your heart over the last week, that the more we give to the Lord, the more He provides. Not, not in a material way, not prosperity gospel. That's a false theology. That if you just pray a certain way or say certain words, that God will give you everything you want. That's not how it works. I see no evidence of that in the Bible. But God will bless us. And God's blessing is a different definition of how we would define material blessing in, in American culture. So we learned that if you pour out, that God provides, that God supplies. Well, this morning, Psalm 23 and verse 6, we're going to see just how willing the Lord is. We've already had some evidence of it as we came to the communion table. What greater evidence is there of how much the Lord will supply than the communion table? How much greater evidence is there than the cross and the fact that Jesus was willing to die for our sins? But, but I want to come to this verse this morning, Psalm 23, 6, because there is so much security that David uh, has as he writes this familiar verse. And, and I want you to see that there's no uh, question in his mind, there's no nervousness, there's no uncertainty or, or doubt or fear or wonder or, or any sense of, of equivocation at all that God might not do this. Now, in a lot of Psalms, uh, we read where, where David is, is struggling with doubt, or he's struggling with insecurity, or, or he's fearful about something, his enemies are strong, and he's asking where the Lord is. There, there are a lot of different places where, where David's confused, and I think that's what makes the Psalms kind of attractive to us, because we look at this great man of God and we say, see, he felt exactly like I do. When you have something happen this week where you're in crisis and you're confused about what the Lord's doing or you're fearful or you're uncertain, how am I going to do this? How am I going to pay for this? How are you going to provide, Lord? Why did you bring this into my life? A lot of times when we're in those situations, we run to the Psalms because we're like, oh, okay, I can take comfort in the fact that, that, that David dealt with this too. In the same way we relate to David's moments of human struggle, we also need to relate to his confidence and his assurance. Because we can't just sit on the parts that say, well, that just provides me some relief that everybody struggles. We also need to find out the solution to the struggle. And Psalm 23 is an amazing chapter of Scripture. Because every one of the 14 verbs in this, in this chapter is definitive. It's certain. It's sure. There's, there's no room for uncertainty whatsoever. And every truth that David talks about is reinforced by the Lord's actions. There's no room for confusion or, or wondering what will God do. And every conclusion that, that David reaches is based on God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. So there's no room for doubt. It's hard to read Psalm 23 and say, well, I don't know if God cares about me. 
I don't know if God will provide for me. I don't know if God will meet me at my, at my point of need. If we're going to be drawn to David's humanity in the Psalms, then we also need to find strength and security in his faith. And this is a place where he is absolutely, undeniably, completely certain about the Lord. In fact, this is what drives him. I think if there's one psalm you look at that, that David wrote when he wrote all these songs, I think this probably was the one he came back to where he said, you know what, this is what motivates me. This is what drives me. This is what incites me to, to follow the Lord. This is what dictates my life. And it was power to him. This, was, this is where his strength was based. Okay, so we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 just for context and kind of foundation for verse 6. But, but we're really going to focus on verse 6 as the source of our study, okay? Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now here's the verse we're going to concentrate on this morning. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now before we can claim the promise of verse 6, we have to see that everything rests on the first line of verse 1. You can't pull the promise out of verse 6 and claim that for anybody. You can't say, well, it says in the Bible, and I've got it on a plaque on my wall, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that applies to me. Well, it applies to us if verse 1 is true. If the Lord is our shepherd. And that sentence, that, that phrase, defines that there is a relationship between the Lord and the believer. And it also describes the nature of the relationship. If we are saying this morning that the Lord is our shepherd, then that means that we're also admitting that we are sheep. Now let that sit in for a second. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we love the I shall not want. But concentrate on the first part, the Lord is my shepherd. If the Lord's my shepherd, what does it mean? It means I'm a sheep. And I gotta tell you, sheep are not the greatest animals in the world. They're helpless, they're aimless, they're defenseless, they're unwise. They are completely unable to save themselves when there's danger. There's not a single situation I can think of where a sheep is considered strong, capable, self-sufficient, and, and, and able to do what it needs. Everything about sheep is incapable and hopeless. Now you say, well, that's kind of harsh on a beautiful September morning that you're describing me as a sheep. That, that, that seems maybe a little bit of a harsh characterization. Well, it, really it's not because there's nothing more true of us spiritually than the fact that we're sheep. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We have nothing. And the great lie is that we're fine on our own. That we don't need a shepherd. We don't need a savior. That, that we can be self-sufficient. And if there's a God somehow up there and, and, and by some happenstance we're accountable to him, 
we are all morally good enough. It won't matter at the end of the day when we die, God will accept us because he's gracious and we've satisfied whatever requirements we have because we haven't killed anybody and, and we're good. That's a lie from the enemy. It's a complete lie that he brings forward and tries to deny the fact that we are all sheep. What does that mean? It means we're all sinners who have no spiritual defense. We have no rights. We have no authority. We are completely guilty. And the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And his lie to us is that we don't need a shepherd. But, but the fact that we're sheep means that we need a savior. We are guilty. We are in under sin as human beings. We're all born with it. We're all sentenced to it. There's no way out of it. The first time we ever willingly sin, that sentences us. But we're already sentenced because we have a sin nature. But we continue to sin and we continue to sin. And that death sentence gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And the only way out, and we've talked about it this morning and celebrated it and praised the Lord for it. The only way out is to be covered by the blood of Christ. It's the only way out. So Jesus is both the shepherd, who the Bible says laid down his life for us, for the sheep... He's not only the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but he's the shepherd who now cares and feeds and provides and guards and secures us as his own. So when we're his sheep, look at verse 1, when he's our shepherd, that's when we can say, I shall not want. Without that relationship, if, if God's not the shepherd this morning, if he isn't the owner of your life, if you don't admit your spiritual income, and your complete need for him and he's not serving as your savior lord and shepherd if if that's not true this morning then verses two to six don't apply you can't claim the rest of the chapter without claiming verse one because that verse and the verses that follow describe the security of somebody who knows the shepherd so that's where it begins now we want to go down to verse 6, but we've got four verses in between. If verse 6 is contingent on verse 1, then every one of the provisions that the Lord makes in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 requires our dependence and our obedience. The Lord is my shepherd, okay? There's a relationship there. He's our Savior and our Lord and our guard and our protector and our help and our strength. All right, if that's true, then he's going to do things to, to help us and provide for us. Start in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Both of those necessitate that we rely on him and rest confidently in his care and provision. If we're constantly fighting him and constantly working against him and constantly, constantly rebelling as the Israelites did all throughout the Old Testament, then we're not going to be resting in him and laying down beside the still waters that he wants to bring to us. So many people are in, in spiritual turmoil this morning and not in peace because they're fighting the will of the Lord. Lord, you're leading me, but I don't want to do that. I don't like that. I don't like how you're providing. I don't like where you're taking me. I don't want to. I want to do my own thing. And then they wonder why they have no peace in their life. You have no peace because you haven't done verse 2. You haven't rested and waited on the Lord and, and, and lived in faith to him. 
Then it says he restores my soul and guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, that requires that we surrender ourselves to him so we can live in the transformation he's provided. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff come from me. That requires deep trust. Because listen, when you're in crisis, you have two choices, right? You try to find your own answers, you panic, you freak out, you're anxious, you're fearful, you're crazy, you're, you're looking for every answer in the world, you're, you're in total turmoil, and, and you're just completely a mess. That's one option. Second option is you go before the Lord and say, Lord, it's yours. I trust you. Everything in life short of faith is a variation of number one. But the only answer for someone who the Lord is their shepherd is to go before him and say, Lord, I totally depend on you. I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where this is leading. I don't know how I'm going to get by. I don't know how you're going to provide. I don't know where the next dollar is coming from. Lord, what are you doing? But you know what? Praise the name of the Lord. I'm going to follow you anyway. That's a mature position of faith. So we say this verse, well, I walk through the valley, shadow of the fear no weaver. Well, is, is that really the reality for us? Then it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. That means that we're taking refuge in him, that we're living in his presence in the face of opposition and hardship and difficulty. We're not trying to be self-reliant. We're, we're living in his blessing. The point is that, that God's full provision as the shepherd is there, but, but as sheep, we are inclined to wander. The old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In other words, for a believer, there are times as sheep when we wander and we're stubborn and we're resistant and we're fighting the will of the Lord. And he says, that's not going to bring you any peace or any comfort. Your only peace and comfort will be when you yield to me. And when you yield to me, you'll have all the benefits of my shepherding. See, that's a very important daily action on our part. And it's important because it offsets spiritual carelessness and it prevents us from taking the grace of God for granted. Because listen, the enemy's trying to fool us. He's trying to get us to believe that the Lord just thoughtlessly dispenses his mercy on anybody without any regard for what they did, who they are, what they believe, what they're about. That, that God just thoroughly and, and, and recklessly dispenses his mercy. He doesn't distinguish God, the enemy tells us, between those who have trusted Christ and are adopted as his own and those who intentionally reject him. And God doesn't look for those who are repentant. God doesn't look for those who are broken by by sin it would be unfair you've heard this politically correct argument it would be unfair for God to judge people even people who openly defy him that would be unfair and unloving of God see the devil is is constantly in an ironic contradiction in one breath the devil argues that God is judgmental and harsh and not gracious and then in the other breath, he argues that if the Lord does forgive, that he has to forgive everybody no matter what they've done. But here's the thing. He's a liar. God is not reckless with his grace. He's generous to those who trust in him, but he doesn't pour out his mercy on someone who is not willing to be surrendered to him. 
Listen, the grace of God is more abundant than we can possibly imagine. I'm living proof of it, and you are too. But God will not just dispense his grace to people that hate him until they turn. And the devil is constantly in this this lie of telling us that we can openly reject God, that people can deny Christ, but at the end, they'll still receive the grace of God if they don't repent because that's what God has to do. But that would make a joke of God's holiness and it would make a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. And he'll also tell us that that we can know Christ, but we can still live for ourselves. That we don't have to put off the old and put off the new. That we don't have to be clothed in righteousness. That we can be blessed and rewarded no matter what. That we can live however we want. We can claim our freedom and our liberty and, and do what we want and continue to live our old lives. And God will just reward us and reward us and reward us because that's who God is. It's not how it works. Why is the whole New Testament about living righteously? Why is every word of the New Testament about the new life and about how it means to put on the, put on the new and put off the old and to, and to yield ourselves to the Lord and to be sanctified in our hearts and to be transformed and renewed in our mind and to follow the Holy Spirit? Why is the whole New Testament about that if we can continue to live recklessly like we used to? That doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm taking a lot of time on this point because we can't come to verse 6. Look back at it. We can't just come to that verse and assume that it's just our right. It's such an awesome expression of God's mercy that he's going to pour that out. He's going to pour verse 6 out onto someone who loves him and trusts him and serves him faithfully. And when we do that, listen now, this is the good part. When we do that, God's grace and God's mercy and God's faithfulness is endless. It's endless. There's no point where God comes to it and he says, I'm done. Rhodes, my goodness, how much mercy have I poured out on you? How many times have I been faithful to you when you've been stubborn and you've been rebellious and you haven't trusted me? You know what? I've reached the end. I'm done. There was a a certain amount of mercy that I was going to pour on you and you've exhausted the supply. So Paul, you're done. Good luck for the next however many years you live because I've given you all I have. Does anybody in this room think God works that way? Mercy after mercy, day after day, his mercy is new every morning. He keeps pouring it out and pouring it out and pouring out. Not so I can abuse it by sinning, but so I can revel in it and rejoice in it because it's such a magnificent gift. God's mercy is not a one-time gift. Yes, salvation through Christ is once and for all, but his mercy continues to be evidenced in our lives every day. I think that's what David means. Look back at verse 6 when he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life because he knows all the different ways that God has poured out his mercy like a fountain. How does God pour out mercy in your life? How's he going to pour out mercy in the 168 hours that you have until next Sunday at this time? Well, let's list a couple. Number one, he pardons us by his mercy. He pardons us. Every single day, you and I should be absolutely blown away by God's willingness and initiative to forgive us. Not just once, but to keep forgiving us. This is why confession is so absolutely important the moment you commit the sin. 
Not, well, I'm going to wait till the end of the day and then I'll lay down. I'm tired and I'm kind of on my phone. All right, I better confess my sins for today. Not, not going to some room in some building and talking to somebody who's a sinner themselves and confessing to them. That doesn't work. You confess to the Lord because you sinned against the Lord. And when you sin, it shouldn't be a delay. It should be, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I no, I'm sorry. I should not have done that. I, I repent of that. I want to turn from that. Why? Because when we confess our sin, it humbles us again, and it fills us with overwhelming gratitude that God has been so unfailingly merciful. The more open and straight we are with the Lord about our sin, the more we will be just amazed at, at and full of joy at what he's done. But listen, the more you hide from your sin, the more you deny it by not confessing, here's what happens. You become cold and you become distant. And when that becomes intentional, well, I'm going to sin and I don't care that I'm sinning and I'm certainly going to justify it and I'm certainly not going to worry about confessing it. When we walk into that, it becomes so much easier to sin. God knows every thought and intent of my heart. There's nothing hidden. He sees it all. I don't even have to say it out loud. I can just be thinking it. He knows it. So he's not surprised when I come to confess, but he wants me to confess because he wants me to own up to it. And it's that point where he pours out his mercy. So he pardons us. Second, he accepts us and claims us. Don't underestimate that one. Think about the fact that through Christ, we are accepted and claimed by God. So much of what is driving our culture this morning is a deep longing for acceptance. And we have fallen so far short. It's why people are gravitating toward the misguided teaching of Islam because it's idealistic. They want to belong. It's why gangs are so prevalent in, in inner cities and even in smaller cities because people don't have a connection to family. They want a place to belong. It's why narcissism is so popular. My kids even felt it last night. They were shopping for, for clothes for homecoming next weekend, and Julie went down with them uh, to Illinois, and they came home discouraged. They're like, I can't stand, forgive me kids for saying this, I, I can't stand my generation. The, the, the immodesty, Annie was looking at dresses for homecoming, and my daughter is, is, is beautiful and, and wonderful, and she wants to be modest, and she goes, I, I, I had so much trouble finding something, and I see these girls, and basically she told me about one dress, she said, the whole dress is see-through, there are just a couple spots where there's covering. And Julie looked at me and she said, the boys don't have a chance. I said, we didn't have a chance in the 80s when, when everything was beautiful and preppy and, and people were covered. Imagine what it's like now. But there's no, there, there's no acceptance. Why do people do that? Because they're looking for somebody to accept them and somebody to care about them and somebody to love them. Look, take a selfie of me. Look where I am. Look at who I am. Look at how many friends I have. Everything is about the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of the church and the lack of acceptance. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ accepts you. He loves you. He pardons us. And he accepts us. Oh, I love this. He claims us as his own. 
If you're the loneliest person on the face of the earth and you feel outcast and don't have any friends and feel isolated, let me tell you something. You can rest in the grace of God because he will wrap his arms around you and love you like you've never been loved before. And once he pardons us and accepts us and claims us, then he protects us and sustains us. See, man wants to be independent. We want to be clever. We want to answer to nobody. But it's interesting. You ever notice when somebody's in a crisis, all of a sudden they want prayer? Pastor, can you go pray with so-and-so? They're not a believer, but, but they want somebody to come pray with them. Interesting. You've ignored God all your life, but now you want prayer. Now you know that you need the Lord. Why is it taking crisis to get you there? A lot of times I see people rebelling, and I see people defying the Lord, and I'll say to Julie with absolutely no joy, that person's about to go through a crisis because God's got to get their attention. And they'll go through a crisis, and they'll become more defiant, and I'm like, what's God going to have to do? Because he's going to do something. Why? Because he's pursuing that person to receive salvation. Don't let it get to the point in your life, believer or unbeliever, where God has to get involved rather than you having self-discipline and repenting before him. Because when God gets involved, he is going to do what it takes. He refreshes us by his mercy. He leads us by his mercy. He loves us over and over and over and over again. Look at the word David uses in verse 6. We're almost done. He says, it keeps following me. God's mercy keeps following me. We'll explain that in a second. But let me ask a big question, because as I was studying this, I thought, all right, well, if God's mercy is so wonderful, and it's abundant, and it's always there, then, then there's going to be a question that's going to arise in our humanity, because every day is not easy or smooth, right? Did anybody have a perfect week where there was no problem, and, and every day was just absolutely like, like glass? I mean, it's just like, oh, man. I, I, it couldn't have been better. Like, there wasn't a sink. Nobody has a week like that. So, the question arises. God's mercy is, a, is, is abundant, Paul. You said that. Okay, so here's the question. What about trials? If God's mercy keeps following me, and I'll explain that in a minute, then why does he allow pain and hardship and suffering and difficulty and sadness? Why wouldn't he especially protect his children, who you said he claims and adopts and declares his own? Why wouldn't he especially bless and, and, and cover his children? No, Jesus said, as my disciples, you're actually going to have more difficulty. Get ready for it because they're going to revile you and persecute you and say all manner of things against you for my name's sake. Because you're loyal to me and you're associated to me, your life's going to be tough. So how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that with Psalm 23, 6, which says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Well, well here are the reasons, I believe, at least a couple of them, I'm sure there are many. Here are the reasons why why that is true even in times of trial. Why does God allow trial? The big question that unbelievers have is, how can bad things happen to good people? Well, first of all, your, your assumption's mistaken because nobody's good. But, but let's get past that for a minute. For the believer who's covered and secure and adopted, why does God allow difficulty? Let me give you four quick reasons. Number one, because we aren't perfectly faithful and consistent in our holiness. 
I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. If anything, the Bible's an example of people who are following God who weren't perfect. So because we're not perfect, God's correction and discipline is necessary, and that's not always fun. Listen, I always want my kids to be happy. I always want my kids to, to, to be content, and I really don't enjoy disciplining them. But if other personal interests take, take priority and precedent over cleaning their room and doing their homework and doing the things that they need to do, then that's about to become a trial for them. I don't, it's not that I don't love them. It's not that I don't want them to be happy. But there has to be behavior that's corrected to a much larger extent. Even as God's children, whom Christ sacrificed to adopt, when we're not walking in holiness, what does God have to do? He has to bring us back around to holiness. That's correction and training righteousness. Second, trials help us learn greater dependence. Because often they put us in a position where we have no other choice but to trust the Lord. And I want to tell you, that's a good position. I've had many times over four decades of trusting the Lord where God has stripped me down spiritually. And I want to tell you right now, God is my judge. They were painful. They were harsh. They were, they were torturous emotionally that where I didn't know what was going to happen. And in every one of those times... God has proven himself faithful and sufficient. And now I look back at those times and they're precious. Because there's nothing like experiencing the presence of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and knowing that he will not let you down. So trials are designed to learn greater dependence. Third, trials are designed to humble us. We don't like being humbled. Let's admit it. But it's necessary. Why? Because who does God give grace to? The humble, right? Who does God oppose? Tell me. The proud. So I would think as believers, we would want constantly for God to keep us humble because that's the time when he's going to bless us. It's when our pride and our arrogance raises up and we start to become defiant and, and rebellious that God says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, I'm not going to put up with that. In fact, I'm going to oppose that to the extent that I'm going to put on the battle gear. And I'm coming right after you. That's why James says in James 1, listen, don't despise trials. Count them all, tell me, joy. Why? Why would I count a trial as all joy? Why would I find all-encompassing, holistic joy out of something that's difficult? Because it's designed to make me complete and like Christ. Christ didn't come down and have an easy life. Christ was broken and bruised for us and put on a cross. So when we go through our meager little trials in the grand scheme of eternity, we have to say, Lord, praise you. I count it all joy because you're making me more like my Savior. And then fourth, quickly, trials develop us in very valuable ways spiritually because they're designed to mature us. The one constant is God's mercy. And I want to close with this. Go back to verse 6 one more time. Because there are two final distinctions in this verse that make this a powerful promise that I pray, Holy Spirit, help us this week. I pray it will encourage us and strengthen us and motivate us to faithfully walk with the Lord every single day. Look at what David writes. He says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. If you write in your Bible, underline surely and follow. 
The first amazing aspect of God's mercy is that it is certain. It is certain. It is sure. The word there means indeed. In other words, there's no question whether this is true. It is certain, God. It is certain, Lord, that your mercy and loving kindness is there. So as your disciple, I never have a moment where I should question or doubt whether you're going to be gracious, whether you're going to show love, whether you're going to forgive me, because you always do. So God's promise is certain and it's sure, but there's a secondary meaning. That word also means only. Now we're going to read the verse again out loud. And we're going to substitute the word only for surely. And I want us to get what this means. You ready? One, two, three. Only goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, God's perfect plan for his children, listen now, is to only pour out his grace and his mercy and his love. Ah, oh, that's amazing truth. God's only desire for us is to pour out mercy and to pour out grace and to pour out love and to pour out sufficiency and to pour out holiness onto us. That's why we can be confident in trials. That's why we can be at peace when we're opposed. That's why we can be full of faith when life is uncertain because God's only plan is to pour out mercy on us. If he disciplines you, it's to pour out mercy. If he takes you through a trial, it's to pour out his love. If he takes you through a time where you're uncertain, it's to show and pour out that he's faithful. That's an amazing truth. Indeed, it is true that only your goodness and your faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life. Now look at the second word, follows, two meanings again. The first meaning is to be behind. I love this thought. It hit me so hard late last night as God spoke to me. It means that God's always trailing me. He always has my back. He's always watching over me. And he's pressing me. He's pushing me forward. He's stirring me. He's inciting me. He's strengthening me. He's even testing me. So I will live in his mercy. You're following me, Lord. Some people would think that's creepy. No, it's not creepy. It's wonderful. As I'm trying to figure out my way and I'm following the leading of the Lord, he's there watching, ready. Is Paul going to fall? Is Paul going to stumble? Is Paul going to go the wrong? No, Paul, go that way. I'm caring for you. I'm watching you. I got your back. You don't have to worry. Don't, don't worry about what's behind. I'm there. Don't worry about what's ahead. I'll lead you. I'm, I'm right behind you. But there's a second meaning that I think is even cooler. It means to pursue. Indeed and only your goodness and mercy will follow me. You'll be behind me. But Lord, you're also pursuing me. Not only is God following our lives with mercy. Listen now, we're done. He's pursuing us. He's strengthening us. He's pushing us. To be like him. There are so many people, so many voices, so many vices, so many things pursuing our heart and mind this morning. So many things grabbing at us, trying to claim us and corrupt us and draw, uh, draw us away from the love of God. And some of you may be caught in those this morning, but let me tell you with absolute certainty, there is nothing greater than being pursued by the mercy of God. 
And he's pursuing you this morning, wherever you stand with him. Maybe you haven't ever trusted Christ as Savior. I want to tell you something. God's pursuing you, and he's not going to give up. He's relentless. And you may think you can get away from him, and you can hide from him, and you can put him off, and you can offend him so much that he'll go away. I'm telling you, he's never going away. He's going to pursue you until you take your last breath or until he returns because he wants you to know his grace and his mercy. And I want to tell you, if you have been resisting and resisting and resisting and God, I pray, is breaking you down this morning and you're at the point where you're like, Paul, I can't resist anymore. Oh, I want to talk to you. I want you to come up after the service and we're going to talk to you and we're going to encourage you. Because you can be freed of your sin forever. Christian, maybe you're a believer. You prayed to receive Christ. You've walked with him at certain times in your life. But honestly, you've wandered away. You're like the sheep that just kind of gets away from the shepherd and you kind of wander out in the wilderness. And you don't know what you're doing. I'm not being critical this one's reality. You're wandering around. You don't you can't make sense of it. You're, you're confused. Where where do I go? Where you gotta get back to the Lord. If sin's controlling you more than the Spirit of God is, God's following you, saying, You gotta get right with me. Come on, come back. I want to be your shepherd, but you gotta be the right sheep. God's grace is abundant, but he won't waste it. He will pour it out on anybody who turns from sin and self and asks for mercy. And when we do that, he will be generous. He will show us his love and his faithfulness and his provision. And he'll follow us constantly until we dwell in the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord forever.